and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We have invited Guy McPherson, an environmental scientist, to speak about his findings about what is going on with our climate, what is going on with our environment, and his views differ rather tremendously from standard conventional science, and we'll get a chance to enjoy his perspective because it is, well, it's based on unfiltered, unfettered science, and he interprets the findings of global warming, global dimming, greenhouse gas overwhelm of our atmosphere, and the presence of nuclear power plants throughout our world as painting a rather dim and dark future for humankind. A little bit about Guy. He is an American scientist, professor emeritus of natural resources and ecology and environmental biology at the University of Arizona. He's best known for promoting the idea of NTE, near-term extinction, a phrase he coined about the possibility of human extinction as soon as 2030. In May of 2009, McPherson began transitioning to living on an off-grid homestead in southern New Mexico. Guy authors a blog called Nature Bats Last that focuses on global climate change, energy decline, and the possibility of imminent human extinction due to the increasing accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, In November of 2015, Guy was interviewed on National Geographic Explorer with host Bill Nye. Regarding his NTE views, Andrew Revkin in the New York Times said McPherson was, quote, an apocalyptic ecologist who has built something of an end of days following. So it's with great pleasure that we invite Guy here today. Guy, a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Mitchell. The pleasure is all mine. Sure. I'd like to point out there's been an update to Revkin's calling me an apocalyptic ecologist. It was Michael Mann and two other colleagues in the Washington Post last year who referred to me as a doomist cult hero. So I think that's a little bit beyond apocalyptic ecologist. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe. Was that like an extra compliment? <laughs> no, I well, don't know. and I pointed out that he's wrong about that, I, that Michael Mann and his colleagues are wrong. I'm not a doomist cult hero. I'm a doomist cult superhero, which is a whole other level. So, if, <laughs> you know, and this is sort of the standard response to my work. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot, sure. a lot of name calling. That's right. That goes along with being the person who promulgates the evidence. You know, underneath this, guy is the truth that people do not want to reckon with their own passing, with their own death, and with the death of everything in which they have believed so fervently for so many decades, centuries, and even at this point millennia. So it is a bit of a crushing blow to the ego and to one's sense of self. So we can understand, I think we can be larger than those who point fingers. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, right. it was nearly 2,800 years ago that Homer you said this. No, no, no. Oh. That Homer pointed out in the Iliad that any moment may be your last. And it was some 2,600 years ago that the Buddha said, the trouble is you think there's time. And here we are, a couple thousand years later, and we have time, obviously. And so there's this notion that 
we are in an infinite growth paradigm that in fact we don't actually this civilization never goes away because it's been running so swimmingly for so long and so of course people are pushing away the information about their imminent demise their demise at all much less their imminent demise who doesn't do that even notwithstanding climate change environmental disasters etc people don't reckon with the reality of their own death anyway absolutely so as i was saying to you earlier what this current scenario that we have created as a society has done has vastly accelerated our our dealing with facing this demise of ours and it's a demise also depending from a Taoist and Buddhist point of view of what is life anyway Alfie right. and if we look at it from a larger perspective we see that life and death are intimately one and one requires the other mm-hmm. and one ain't better or better than the other it's a continuum right absolutely and of course as nearly as I can tell I prefer living to death, but I don't really know because I'm not dead yet. It might be better. <laughs> Some people are absolutely convinced. Some have attested. They have come absolutely. back. Some people, I have interviewed many of them. Bingo. <laughs> Some people claim it's better on, quote, the other side. Well, exactly. I don't know, but I'm rather enjoying this side. If we can just keep this well, going for a while longer, I'm a fan. I'll tell you. I think that it's our job to feel exactly like that. It's our job to appreciate the depth and the breadth and the magnificence and the beauty of human life in this case, you know, and if would it would apply to a cockroach too, but that we enjoy life and when then life, corporal life, material, embodied life comes to its natural disintegration, we move on to the next adventure, right. if you will. Right. Yes, absolutely, and I see so many people who do not appreciate their own life, their own set of living arrangements. They they find any reason to be miserable and therefore to make other people around them miserable as well because we all know that misery loves company, especially miserable company. And if people could just appreciate what they have, the, the fact that you get to be here at, at all is something of a DNA-rooted miracle. And yet here we are, as Richard Dawkins says, with the eyes to see where we are and the brains to wonder why. Again, <laughs> seemingly impossible odds. Truly. Isn't that... It's all exactly, as you say, it's so remarkable, and it's like living a miracle every day. And I want to point out, you, you referenced Homer 2,600-some-odd 20, uh, years ago, mm-hmm. and, of course, mm-hmm. the Buddha... But also Nietzsche said, not that long ago, live as though the day were here. Right. And that is a resounding comment. Right. And, and of course, our great friends, uh, you know, the uh, shaman uh, that was so popular um, in the uh, 70s. Um, I wasn't really aware Don, of me or anybody else. Oh, his name is escaping me most. I'm so sorry. But... That's right. That's right. You're a bit of a younger man. Don Juan, Juan, right, who's shapeshifter, who also said, live with death on one shoulder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my old Tai Chi teacher used to say that all the time. So Mm -hmm. live 
with the presence of death because it makes right. you actually more alive. And I think one of the issues we're dealing with, Guy, on the psychological and emotional level of dealing with the subjects that you so brilliantly bring forth, and we're going to get to the science in a moment, is that people also then have to reckon with not just death as such, but the way that they have chosen to live their lives, which actually is very often rather death-like. And they're not appreciating, as you were saying, the magnificence and depth of life itself because they start to see that they're actually on a death cycle with the lifestyle choices they make. And that becomes painful. Absolutely. I see so many people who are not living. You know, the tragedy is the not walking that we die. Dead. Exactly. The tragedy is not that we die. It's that so many people refuse to live before they, they refuse to live. Exactly. And so, then they start living and feeling deep regret. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the one of the overwhelming responses to accepting one's death is regret of how I have or have not lived. And there are many, many regrets associated with dying. But but if you throw them all into a big bucket and you do an analysis, what emerges is the incompletion of relationships in your life. You didn't come to grips with somebody who died before you. You didn't come to a meaningful relationship with that ex in your life, with that person who either died or divorced or moved away or whatever, before you had an opportunity to fulfill, to complete that relationship, to say all that needed to be said. When somebody has their stage four cancer and a terminal diagnosis, and we know with great certainty that they're going to end this physical realm within the next six weeks or six months, those people then have an opportunity to complete relationships in a way that many of us will not have. Because we're going to reach our end rather abruptly, and we will... I suspect a lot of us will wish that we had made that phone call to patch up that misunderstanding, that we'll wish we had taken that extra step to get in touch with the relatives before we we didn't know we were going to see them for the last time. And that's the thing. You never know which goodbye is going to be the last one. You don't know when you're going to see or not see somebody again. And that's what I think my message and that of the Buddha and that of Homer and the Iliad brings to mind and brings to the fore is that any moment may in fact be your last. And so how you treat people today, that might be your legacy. This, this might be the last people you ever interact with. Do you want to kick them? Do you want to slap in the face? Or do you want to treat them with dignity? Do you want to treat them with respect like like you think you deserve to be treated? And I think if if people come to the realization that life is in fact short, n- no matter how we determine that shortness mm-hmm. to relative state. Then then they might actually start treating people differently than they otherwise would. You know, I appreciate all that you're saying very much and uh as a therapist for many decades and counselor and coach and I work with people, couples, families, individuals and this is one of the aspects that I have to deal with. And I bring this out so that people can have that accelerated experience toward their end in this, you know, material somatic life so that they see that they can be responsible now for their lives and for their relationships. And as you very rightly pointed out, 
most of our suffering comes from our incomplete relationships and most of our joy comes from our we are social animals and we need each other and if you look at evolution and you look at survival it's because of our relationships that we survive and it's not a survival of the fittest scenario that uh, has been attributed by the way and i understand rather falsely to darwin but rather it's our bonding our release of oxytocin our ability to love is what has kept us alive our ability to laugh and smile and join with each other and that bonding that tribal bonding and by the way the use of the arts as another way of communicating has been the real bedrock of getting us into our current you know into the agricultural time period that we entered from you know hunting and gathering so i appreciate the points and what your work does is it very much highlights the importance of reckoning with not just our death as we're really pointing out with our life of regret of our life of not showing ourselves the proper love and respect and this is the issue that we in the field of psychology are dealing with actually all the time and it's how can we then make up to ourselves and start afresh we do have time, and we have a next moment, usually, to say, <laughs> okay, I got it. Let's turn this baby around. You know? Right. Right. But I'd like to come back around, and we'll go back into this, if you would. But let's look at some of the hard science that has brought you to the point of the conclusions to the perspective that you have and in a world that has many many environmental scientists many have not come to the same hard and fast conclusion as you have so if you would first spell out the science that has had you draw the conclusions you have and then why you are so much uh well a bit of a lone voice yeah and you know the science is pretty well represented in an essay that numbers more than 32,000 words. So we're not going to have time to go into the whole thing here. Not all 32,000. <laughs> right. And that's an essay that was updated for years on, an, on a nearly daily basis, at least weekly, for several years. And then I stopped when I moved to Belize because the poor telecommunications infrastructure prevented me from updating it. So it was last updated, I think, on August 2nd, 2016. And the the bottom line is that we are in the midst of abrupt climate change, an event with precedence in planetary history, but never with humans involved. So the planet has warmed very rapidly in a short period of time in the past. So we know What's this. What's a short period of time? As much as five degrees C in 13 years. So that's a very abrupt warming. Now we know about global dimming, an aspect that probably had little to do with the previous mass extinction events because it's a result of industrial activity. Global dimming is an outcome of burning fossil fuels, especially coal and particularly poor quality coal. Most coal isn't, quote, clean coal, so it has lots of sulfur in it. When you burn sulfur 
high sulfur coal, you produce a lot of sulfates or aerosols. These go up into the atmosphere and act as a shade for incoming sunlight. So they prevent the sunlight from actually entering the lower atmosphere. They're reflected back out into space. And it turns out the impact of global dimming as a result of industrial activity since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is a very, very high number, about 50% or more of the current level of increased temperature since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, commonly pegged at 1750. Mm-hmm. So the initial paper, the initial referee journal article on the topic, as far as I know, is by Hansen and colleagues in December of 2011. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the, the, the godfather of climate science basically has this paper in December 2011 pointing out we can expect a 1.2 plus or minus 0.2 degrees Celsius global average temperature rise as a result of turning off the switch of civilization because those sulfates, those aerosols fall out of the sky. They're constantly falling out of the sky and we're constantly adding them back in by continuing to burn fossil fuels. But if we stop, then within about six weeks later, they all fall out, and we lose the umbrella or the shade cloth of global dimming, and the planet heats up catastrophically quickly, way too fast for organisms to keep up. Trees can't move. No plants can just get up and move in response to and So the changing of the, the, let's say, the stop to coal production and coal use, would actually create another serious heating problem. It would it would cause such a rapid heating of the planet that it would almost certainly drive us and almost all complex life on the planet to extinction in a matter of uh, functional extinction within a matter of weeks. So from that so we would lose ironic, habitat. Exactly. completely paradoxical point of view, the coal is doing us a service. Exactly. Really? In fact, Michael Mann, perhaps the best-known working climate scientist in the world today, distinguished professor of climate science at Pennsylvania State University, said in an interview with Tom Hartman about three years ago, when asked what do we do, he said, we can't stop burning coal. First thing he says, this is a climate scientist. more remarkable than anything else you've said to me so far, from got, my point of view. Yeah, I got, Truly. I got more tricks up my sleeve, too, man. Oh, my word. <laughs> And so this is what's been called the McPherson Paradox, not by me, by somebody on Facebook, and it's sort of got, gone viral Stuck. since then. Uh-huh. The McPherson Paradox is that I, I quote Tim Garrett, professor of atmospheric science at U, the University of Utah, who has done research dating back to 2007 on civilization as a heat engine. No matter how we power civilization, mm-hmm. solar panels, wind turbines, whatever you Generating want, heat. It's a heat engine. That's the nature of this set of living arrangements. And well, movement creates heat right. of any sort, whether right. it's the body or technology. Absolutely. Machine. And so now we have a lot of movement going on with 7.6 billion people and enormous super cities and, and so on and materials moving all over the globe all the time. Yes. So civilization is a heat engine based on the laws of thermodynamics. And yet, paradoxically, you turn off civilization, the planet heats up even faster. And so rapidly why? that there's no way we can keep up. Because we lose happen? those sulfates, they drop out of the atmosphere, and we lose the umbrella or the shade cloth 
that is associated with burning fossil fuels. What if those fossil fuels weren't just hypothetically burned in the first place and we didn't have that shade, but population increased and other technologies, even renewable energy technologies, were on the upswing? That, Would we still have that same issue? No, absolutely not. So it's because fossil fuels were begun to be burned in the first place that created the shade, which then became a necessary protection yes. to the continuation of the machine going. Absolutely. So industrial civilization is oh doing two things my. at the same time. It's heating the planet through greenhouse gases, holding the heat closer to the planet once the heat gets in, but it's also keeping the heat from getting in. Thus the paradox. Civilization is an omnicidal heat engine, based on the laws of thermodynamics. And if we turn off the heat engine, we heat the planet even faster. Damned if you do, damned so if you don't. So there is you, man, and who else embraces and speaks of this perspective? Well, the notion of global dimming, the, the first refereed journal article on the topic was by Hansen and colleagues, and, and pointed out a 1.2 plus or minus 0.2 degree global average temperature rise as a result of turning off the switch of civilization. A subsequent paper by Levy and colleagues in 2013 concludes that as little as a 35% reduction in industrial activity warms the planet one degree Celsius. As little as 35% reduction. So that's basically the economy of China or pretty close to the European Union or pretty close to the United States. I, I think currently the United States economy is somewhere between 25 and 30% of the world economy. Mm -hmm. So as little as 35% reduction in industrial activity causes the planet to heat up one degree C in a matter of weeks. About six weeks. So Hansen is also... His work... He and Collins reported on this. Absolutely. Yes. So, and bear in mind. I've just never heard Hansen say, keep burning coal, baby. I've just never right. heard that. Right. Keep I in mind. I thought I heard the opposite. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's so, my complete miscomprehension. No, no, because he doesn't say keep burning coal. He says we have to get off fossil fuels, but we also have to come up with a way some way, and there's no known technology, to enhance global dimming while we stop burning fossil fuels. Isn't that where geoengineering this kind of comes yes, in? Yes, this is called fantasy technology. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Could you unpack that a bit? Yeah, I mean, Truthout was the first to call it fantasy technology. The United Nations supported Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their vaunted fifth assessment, which came mm -hmm. out in 2014 officially, it was heavily leaked beginning in September 2013, Con with almost all of their scenarios into the future, they concluded that we would need to massively geoengineer the atmosphere's chemistry if we're to survive. And that's right. We would. And then Truthout points out in an article, I think in April of 2014, that that relies upon fantasy technology. There's no known way to do that. And then Come summer of 2015, the United States National Academy of Sciences gets together a group of scientists, and they conclude that geoengineering is fantasy technology, that in fact it's likely to make the situation worse with respect to climate change, not better. 
and the European body of similar stature to the National Academy of Sciences concluded the same thing within a couple of months later. So here we have a European body, the, the most well-respected scientific body in the history of the United States, and they both conclude that geoengineering will not work. And the IPCC, one of the most conservative scientific bodies in the history of the planet, concludes that's the only way forward. Again, it's this horrible paradox where we absolutely must employ geoengineering, and we also know, based on abundant evidence at this point, that geoengineering will not work. So it's consistent with the other the paradox. The collision of two theories. Right. It's, it's consistent. Theory collision. Right, and it's it's like the McPherson paradox, the so-called McPherson paradox. Talk about being where, between a rock and a hard place. Bingo. So we either keep civilization, which is the heat engine, going, or we turn it off and heat the planet even faster. We have to geoengineer the planet, and we can't geoengineer the planet. In addition to those two paradoxes, we're also in the midst of the sixth mass extinction on planet Earth. You put all those together, and sure. and you know we might not functionally as a species. We might not have a habitat by the end of this month, by the end of this year, by the end of next year. Well, I personally, I'd love to hear the science fleshed out about this, but intuitively I could say that based on my observations of the ways of nature and the cosmos, that there is a precipitousness. There's an unpredictability despite all of our amazing software predictability predictable charts, you know, and uh, programs that are supposed to be uh, gauging probabilities. At the same time, there is this, like a switch of the light, everything changes, mm -hmm. where it's, it's, it's exemplified in an avalanche. You know, there's boom, 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 slowly, 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 then bam, down, finished, right. Right. kaput. So is that... There is a scientific basis to that. There's certainly an observational, yeah, empirical basis. You know, there are things we don't know. And Correct. And it, anybody who has spent any time in nature, anybody who's spent any time conducting research in the natural world, and I'm a field botanist, I'm, I'm a field ecologist, I spent my entire career outdoors fussing with and manipulating wild nature. And anybody who's done that is a humble human being and knows that there are things that we don't know and will never know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so could it be that we are, despite the two paradoxes and the sixth mass extinction, could it be that we will persist? Sure. Could be. It would surprise me very much based on what we do know, and we do know a lot now, but there are things we don't know. So... Or it could be that there are small bands of people that exist in this one geographical location and another, and they manage to survive based on climactic conditions in those particular places and their ability to adapt. Right. So it would possibly continue, but with a right. very different appearance than what we have today. Absolutely, and, and those bands will have to deal with global dimming, the very rapid change in global average temperature, which precludes the ability of plants to keep up. And so how are they going to find food? food? Exactly. And everything. So and, and also, those small bands are going to have to deal with ionizing radiation from those 450-plus nuclear power plants that melt down. In, as civilization falls apart, there, 
it takes decades to safely decommission a nuclear power facility, and we aren't starting that process. Not even starting. In fact, quite the contrary. They seem to be continuing to ramp up. And yes. in France, even calling it green for crying out right. loud. I mean, we have lots of headaches before us. But if you Chernobyl was horrible. Yes. And Chernobyl turned out to be because of the creation of the sarcophagus, the ability to pour cement onto Chernobyl as it was melting down. So it's now encased by a sarcophagus. As a result, Chernobyl is a thousand times better than Fukushima because Fukushima is right on the ocean. Yes. You can pour all the concrete you want in there. It's going to end up in the Pacific Ocean. It's not going to stop anything. What's going on on the West Coast is outrageous in terms of even birth defects I hear now. I mean, it's just outrageous. And, of course, this is another example of denial that no one wants to really tell the truth about what the causes of these aberrations are. Right. And yeah. and the U.S. federal government shutting down monitoring stations for radiation on the West Coast is that in, so? in the wake of Fukushima? God, of course. I didn't know. That's horrible. And that was so, under the previous administration. Right. The kinder and gentler one, right? right? <laughs> so the story goes. So, right, the story goes. Let's go back, because I'm, I'm still, you know... Uh, Kvelling, as we say in Yiddish, about your point regarding um, global dimming and the need for coal production to provide that shading, dimming effect to maintain the heat at this level, right. let alone a more accelerated and one. And this level is the highest level experienced by Homo sapiens, according to a paper by James Hansen and colleagues in 2017. In 2017, Okay. So we're right at the upper limit that humans have occupied the planet in the past, that our species Homo sapiens has been here in the past. And so that suggests to me that we could be, that we're already losing habitat all around the world for Homo sapiens. Could Desertification. We be, absolutely. Desertification, sea level rise, Correct. the intrusion of salt water into the freshwater supply. Yes. All kinds of reasons that we're losing habitat for humans in various spots around the globe. I, I can't imagine that increase in global average temperature is going to make things better. But there have been proposed other ways to deal with global dimming besides continuing to burn coal. Peter Wadhams, um, who was director of the Ocean Physics Program at Cambridge for many years and who has conducted more than 50 expeditions on and beneath the Arctic ice, is probably the world's leading authority on ice in the Arctic Ocean. He suggests using marine cloud brightening. In other words, going out into the Arctic, above the Arctic Circle, and using technology that hasn't been ramped up yet to spray water up into the sky. And the brightening of the atmosphere allows for albedo or reflectance of incoming radiation. However, so so that would prevent sunlight from striking the ice and melting the ice from above. The problem is just within the last... You mean the, water, the sprayed water would be acting as a shield? Yes, exactly. It would act as a bunch of white clouds, mm-hmm. you know, prevent incoming radiation from hitting the ice and directly melting it from above. The downside is, as we've learned in the last couple of weeks, based on the refereed journal literature, the Arctic ice is melting from below. The Arctic ice is melting from above, 
from sunlight striking it. It's and also melting below. from below because, because the, of the current ocean is hot. Are warming exactly. You can't. And and the Washington Post ran a piece within the last month. The Washington Post, the mouthpiece of empire, ran a piece indicating that the Atlantic and the Arctic oceans have merged. In, in the headline, they referred to the Atlantic and Arctic Ocean being one. The the merging of ecosystems that's as a result. Not in a spiritual way. No, 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 not at all. In a serious geographical way. Right, and so of course you're pumping the, all that warm water is streaming up there and is melting the ice from below. It's the the radiation is melting the ice from above. When we have an ice-free Arctic, very, very shortly thereafter, we lose habitat for humans on the planet. Even the president of Finland has been going around telling people that since August 28th of last year when he announced it at a, please. at a press because conference. Because I deal with a water conservation company in Finland okay. who knows the president. And okay. I, he hasn't said this to me. At a, at a press conference with Donald Trump on August 28th, 2017, the president of Finland said, if we lose the Arctic, we lose the globe. That's reality. That's a direct quote. And what he meant was, if we lose the ice in the Arctic Ocean, if we have an ice-free or nearly ice-free Arctic Ocean, then we lose habitat for humans shortly thereafter. It's a paper in the Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences from 2012 that projected an ice-free Arctic in 2016, plus or minus three years. And we're we're very close to an ice-free Arctic this year. I don't think it's going to happen this year. I, I suspect we'll end up the year with Is just over 4 million square kilometers truly of ice. that advanced, that melting? In oh, the yes. Arctic. Oh, yes. So of 100%, where would you say we are of well, the melting, of we're, ice-free? We're, we're <laughs> here's an example. U.S. Navy satellites from about two years ago indicated that the ice, which – in 1979, when satellite records began, the ice on average was more than three and a half meters thick. As of a couple of weeks ago, the satellites indicate that the ice, more than 99% of the ice is less than a meter thick. So the phrase treading on thin ice comes to mind, and it's literal in this case. So we never had a, what was called a cyclone hit the Arctic ever in human history until last year. And now people talk about cyclones on the Arctic as if they're going out to get bread at the grocery store. They're happening all the time. Any one of those cyclones could completely destroy the very thin ice that's there right now and lead very quickly Hence to, the, to the precipitousness of exactly. nature and reality. Exactly. It's not mm-hmm. ice that's more than three and a half meters thick anymore. It's ice that is thinner than my legs are long. It's for ice skating. It's unbelievable, and the difference there is very important in terms of ice volume and the structure of that ice and the fragility of that ice. The ability to maintain that ice cover into the future is seriously compromised. And without Arctic ice, we're done. And there's so much latent heat built into the system, I don't see turning this sucker around. So tell me, Regarding the McPherson paradoxes, you spoke of global dimming and the role of coal, which is remarkable to me. I pardon my ignorance about that. I just 
did not have any clue whatsoever. And I'm especially Well, uh, most people don't because, because climate scientists don't talk about it and the media isn't telling anybody. Yeah, and I'm tuned in beyond that. I listen to our dear colleague and friend Gary Null a lot and others. Uh, so I've gone beyond, the, far beyond the norm and conventional right. mainstream uh, media. Still and all, I, you know, we mm-hmm. all have our little places of ignorance, don't we? We have blind spots. So this, is, this was one for sure. me, and I really appreciate being illuminated about it, in a way. <laughs> but uh, I'm wondering, what else? You said something about your sleeve and having a few other tricks up your sleeve. <laughs> what else, Sky? <laughs> what else? Are there other um, enigmas sort of like that that we should know about? Well, well there's, there's this notion of... There's a, there's a certain amount of warming that is locked in. For example, there's a paper in the February 2009 issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States indicating that the heat locked into the current level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that heat is locked in for at least the next thousand years. So if we were somehow miraculously able to get, and at the time, carbon dioxide atmosphere, in the atmosphere was 385 parts per million. Now we're up over 400. And at the time, the amount of heat... And what about 300 or 350? Yeah, yeah, right? those were the good old days. Those are never coming back. We will we'll never, get to that. We will never we'll see 400 in our lifetimes. We will never drop below 400. And 385 guaranteed 6 degrees Celsius above the 1750 baseline. So there's this lag built in the system. There's also a 10-year lag, approximately, between release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and maximum heating associated with those released molecules. So we, you know, every time we turn on a light switch, a little more coal gets burned, we release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but the maximum heating Unless associated we're using with... using solar. Right. In which case we... Unless we're using wind. In which case civilization Unless is still a heat engine. geothermal. And... All of those require... Unless we're using microhydro. All of those require liquid fuels for delivery and maintenance. Yes. And nonetheless, the heat mechanism that you're referring to remains. The release of carbon dioxide reaches maximal level 10 years after the release. So the carbon dioxide we're burning today, Earth will experience the maximum heating in 10 10 years. years. Not today. We're experiencing maximum heating from molecules that were released in... 2008, during the global financial crisis, which was starting just about now. There was a lot of heat generated then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not much light. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't always follow each other. <laughs> and so, so Not a lot of illumination. <laughs> there's another challenge, is this lag in the maximum temperature associated with release of greenhouse gases, and also the lag associated with the greenhouse gases currently in the atmosphere and the persistence of the heating, how long it will be maintained far, far into the future. So we're left with, according to Hansen and colleagues and most people who think we can solve this crisis, we're left with what the what many people, including the United States National Academy of Sciences, call fantasy technology. 
what is Jim Hansen's recommendations for solution? He says that the millennials have to fix it. In fact, that 2017 paper I pointed out mm-hmm. by Hansen and colleagues indicating that we are currently at approximately the highest temperature experienced by Homo sapiens in our entire 300,000-year so history. So you mentioned, but what does he propose as the solution so, other so let me than give you, a bunch of iPhone-watching millennials fixing the problem? Well, here's the title. that's not that uh, uplifting a thought. No, it's not. Here's the title all of that, respect. Here's the title of that paper. Young People's Burden, colon, the necessity for carbon dioxide, for the requirement for negative CO2 emissions, the requirement for negative CO2 emissions. In other words, the young people, the burden is on them to come up with technology that will extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at a very large scale. So, again, he he reverts to fantasy technology. This is one of the most rational people in the history of the planet, and certainly when it comes to climate science, he's the person who was sounding the alarm on the floor of Congress in 1988. I know. He is the go-to person, and immense yet, respect for him. Yeah, absolutely, and so do I. Sure. People think that I don't, but I'm just pointing out that he has a paper headline: "Young People's Burden." You got to fix the damn thing. It's like I broke it; the the eggs fell over the, all over the floor, and you got to put the eggs back to Humpty Dumpty. Where are you Humpty at? Dumpty. <laughs> I and, just wrote a blog about that. Of course, I was referring to Donald Trump, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> Humpty um, Trumpty. The work. Okay, we're <laughs> we're not going to segue completely into the solution part of today's show, but we are maybe going to uh, crawl in a little bit, and then we can go back to some of the other McPherson paradoxes, which I'd like to hear. Uh, but there is a Dr. Licht in at uh, the George Washington University who's working on. Are you familiar with his? Work? I'm not. His work is considered to be one of the great breakthroughs in uh, eliminating and removing CO2 from the atmosphere en masse. And uh, I'm seeking to be in dialogue. I've received an email. I'm waiting to receive more. I want to have him on the show because what he's doing is rather phenomenal. And it is massive removal of CO2. My concern is our lifestyle and the way that we will be continuing to add once it's removed. So that's not an answer in itself. Human beings, so that's why I went into the field of psychology guy. At the end of the day, we're dealing with the mindset, with the belief system of a human being and what he or she feels is possible and what's not and their general sense of laziness and comfort and convenience overdoing, let's just say, making the right choices. Mm-hmm. So, sure, sure. I mean, putting that aside, but looking on the level of technology. No, please. I'm sorry. Yeah, even even if we can quote fix the carbon dioxide problem, we still have methane. We still have permafrost melting throughout the circumboreal region. This in the would north. be a beautiful time. Would you please go into the methane question because that's a hundred times or so more severe. Uh, toxin than CO2. Molecule for molecule, methane is is more than 100 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So if you want to heat the planet, let's release methane. And we're doing that from terrestrial permafrost as it's melting away. We shouldn't even call it permafrost anymore. It's permamelt. And the melt has been going on for a long time. 
and now we have enormous meaning for at least the last 10 years. And so now we have so places... So this is a permafrost, essentially, in the, at the poles. Yes, mostly in the, at the North Ant- Pole. Antarctic, okay. Mostly at the North Pole, mostly, mostly in Siberia and Alaska and Canada. And that's Canada. gone from three and a half meters down to... No, that's the ice. Oh, that's the ice, okay. That's the so ice that has reduced thickness. Permafrost, no, permafrost is terrestrial. For the, I'm talking about terrestrial permafrost okay. that is found on land in places like Siberia. And permafrost, by definition, is ground that is frozen for at least two years. Two years consecutively, it doesn't melt. So it's frozen, thus permafrost. And now, within the last year in the global north, we've had many places where there has been no freezing at all. In a year, many of those areas formerly called permafrost have not frozen even during winter. So if they aren't freezing even during winter, they are no longer permafrost, they're no longer no longer classified as permafrost. And what that used to be is permanently... of course allowing the methane to rise. Exactly. And there have been media reports of that happening in Siberia that Absolutely. has stunned even the Russian scientists. Absolutely. So there's a release of methane and carbon dioxide. Those are the primary greenhouse gases that are released with decomposition of permafrost. And both of those are bad. And from some of the areas there is pressurized methane and carbon dioxide coming out where uh, mm-hmm. you, you can see these videos. Like a geyser. Yeah, you can see these videos online. Somebody will go along and they'll punch a hole in the in ground that looks like jello. Mm. The ground looks like jello. It's supposed to be permanently frozen, but it's wobbly. It looks, you know, like a trampoline that you jump up and down on, and it gives. And so this this man goes and he punches his heel into it, and you can hear the pressurized methane and carbon dioxide coming out. It's just coming directly out and pouring into the atmosphere. Yes, exactly, like a valve being turned open. And is it the presence of the CO2 as the greenhouse gas that is the serious contributor to the melting of the permafrost, and then the methane goes next? It's, It's the heating that is causing the, the ice to melt okay. as a result of CO2, CO2 and probably also Blood methane levels. at this point. You know, methane is three and a half times higher in the atmosphere than it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, 1750. 1750 was about 750 parts per billion. Now it's up, routine, it routinely spikes above 2,500 parts per billion, no. and is pretty much permanently at 1950 or so parts per billion. There are certainly anthropogenic uh, uh, sources of the methane rise Absolutely. in commercial agriculture, monocropping in commercial beef production. Absolutely. Uh, you know, animal husbandry all over. Uh, animal, animal agriculture is a primary contributor to methane including atmospheric methane. Of course it is. And even if we stopped all that today, if we all decided we're not going to participate in in industrial agriculture anymore, I suspect a lot of people would find themselves very hungry tomorrow. But the other thing that would happen is... When you say industrial agriculture, you mean plant food as well as beef, pork? Absolutely. Methane is released when you pull a plow through the ground. 
anywhere in the Midwestern United States, you pull a plow, you're releasing carbon dioxide and methane from the soil, and it's going directly into the atmosphere. Most people are not familiar with that. Most people think it requires some other source, like the cow has to cow dung. belch or, or, or yeah, belch, right, right to Either get the, end, the right. methane in the atmosphere. Either end will do. But that's not the only source. Civilization itself, by turning the soil over, releases those greenhouse gases. And that's why you can trace an increased abundance in atmospheric gases in the atmosphere all the way back to the early civilizations a few thousand years ago. When it, agriculture began? Exactly. When, I, when we began growing grains at a, at a much larger scale than any time before, so we were able to store the food. Do you know what they say, Guy, about why agriculture actually began? No. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's true I wasn't there. But they say they were looking to grow barley for hops for beer. Oh. In Egypt and a few other Middle uh-huh. East and a few other places. So Ireland, civilization arose for beer. Exactly. Which is consistent with Ben Franklin's statement about beer, Which by the is. way. Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> So I think Ben Franklin was probably a fan of civilization, maybe only because of the beer. <laughs> or let's, from another point of view, say it's man's yearning for an altered state of consciousness. Well, death is an altered state of consciousness, folks. <laughs> right. The it, unembodied mental state. For all we might know, it might be completely consistent with drinking too much beer. It may be. I mean, it looks like everyone in power is rather drunk. To me, mm-hmm. <laughs> drunk on power, perhaps drunk on money. Yeah. But uh, wow! So this is important. You're saying that, of course, methane is more than a hundred times worse than CO2, but both are released simply through the process of agricultural turning itself. Uh, you know, um, turning the soil. Yeah, turning the soil. Absolutely. The, the, the that's remarkable. But is it in sufficient supply um, volume that it would be having this effect. It's, what if it were family farms going back to an earlier day, even animal husbandry from that point of view? If it were, you know, a family had a plot of land that they harvested and they had a cow and they had a pig, you know, so it was on a very more local, absolutely. non-commercial level. Sure. It would be a different world. There's no question it would be a different world. And and you go back to the earlier several, civilizations several thousand years ago, and those civilizations didn't cause – they caused a measurable increase in methane in the atmosphere. They caused a measurable increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but they didn't cause carbon dioxide to increase by 40% in the atmosphere. They didn't cause methane to go up to two and a half or three times in the atmosphere what it was before. So we have just doubled down and doubled down and doubled down again on on the plowing, on the civilization. So if we were to go back to a pre-World War II existence mm-hmm. with 2 billion people on the planet and people living very close to their food supply, would it be a different world? Yes. And I think that's the only way, by the way, that we can solve this so-called problem is by this is very interesting. With a time machine. And <laughs> I have one over here. <laughs> um, it also is a very good argument for hydroponics. <laughs> right? Sure. I, I mean, mean there's, you need soil. I love soil. Yes, exactly. But you don't need soil. 
and there is in fact a large movement afoot, and um, I'm part of it of bringing the growing of microgreens to windowsills. It's called urban farming. Sure. Of growing in windowsills right in apartments all over New York City and every urban area of the world. Sure. Uh, the, the the property where I lived in New Mexico for several years was comprised of a duplex, and the duplex was divided by a relatively large breezeway, and we referred to the place as the mud hut because the straw bale walls on the interior were coated were coated with soil, the plaster with soil from the property, so we, mm. we called it the mud hut. Yeah. And the the one side of the duplex we referred to as the basil house because we always had basil plants growing in the window. And basil is one of those things that almost anybody can grow in a pot and provide enough basil for you for your entire life. Exactly, you never have to go buy exactly. $7 basil from the grocery store. Especially if you're Italian. I mean, come on. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and so are there things we can do to reduce our environmental footprint? Of course there are. And, and we can do those now, even when I suspect it's too late to extend the run of our species. Had we implemented a few thousand minor and even moderate or extreme practices rooted in a different human behavior 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, it would be a completely different world than it is today. And we can still do those things Mm -hmm. consistent with the conversation we've already had about taking right action and not being attached Mm -hmm. to the outcome. Mm -hmm. So I think it's too late for all of those things to make any difference, but that's no reason to not do them. Right, because I mean, we, after all, you know, we don't run and be like decadent Romans and say, "Ah, oh, what the hell," you know. Let's right. have a, a little bit more beer and another orgy, you know, whatever. You know, right, just being silly about it. But yeah, no, I completely appreciate what you mean. But let's let's take the solution subject to another level too. Let me uh, bring up the work of Paul Hawken, mm-hmm. uh, and in his latest book. Drawdown. Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan for reversing climate change. And uh, actually, I'm part of, in a better world, as part of promoting an event that's taking place here with his co-author, Lynn Twist, and Bill McKibben is moderating it at the Society for Ethical Culture coming up soon. Oh, the irony. Mm. Never mind. In this situation, he has uh, basically hired a large international uh, prestigious group of scientists who have weighed in on their own respective perspectives on what to do. And they've come up with a formidable list, which actually has to do with, uh, uh, you know, refrigeration, refrigerator disposal, interestingly. The education of girls all over, but largely in developing countries, not to have children early, to get a better education, to become part of society's um, solution base, if you will. And they usually don't get married till later in life and therefore also have fewer children, they're more educated, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this whole model. It's very interesting. Of course, it involves the use of fossil fuels. Of course, it involves you know commercial agriculture as well. But there's this hierarchy of points, and his contention through listening to a series of environmental scientists around the world 
say that it it can indeed, which includes, by the way, I should say, lifestyle change, as I understand, can really not just mitigate but literally reverse your right. thoughts. Right, so, so he and these other scientists are promoting the ideas, including changes in human behavior, that I was teaching in my classrooms 25 and 30 years ago. Yay, about goddamn time you caught up. Sorry for the language. But we've known about this for a long time. We've known that... that Me too. Educating, I'm not a scientist as such at all. Educating girls is the most important step we can take. I've been teaching this for 30 years. We've known this for a long time, and we haven't done it. We have not made those societal changes. What makes you think that people are going to take this group of scientists seriously? Limits to growth came out in 1972. We've known we were bumping up against the limits to growth. I remember when that happened. And I now we're when there. Out. I was a wee young lad, but I remember, and I was stunned. And now the we're there. We're at the limits to growth, and nobody's talking about it. No government is taking any significant action. No corporation is telling anybody that we need to have fewer people on the planet. We've known about this my entire life. Only the eugenics people. Right, and the voluntary human extinction movement, <laughs> which has very few volunteers, by the way. <laughs> everybody that. thinks everybody else should volunteer. <laughs> so what do you think, Bob? <laughs> You're a noisy neighbor. <laughs> so, yes, there are all these ideas that have been proposed for a very long time, including biochar. and Tell me about and, biochar. I suspect had we implemented biochar, and, and I'll describe it briefly, shortly, had we implemented biochar after World War II instead of relying upon the Haber-Bosch process to fertilize our crops, then we would be nowhere close to peak oil or net energy decline. We'd be nowhere close to runaway greenhouse because biochar is just taking any wood, any highly lignified material, and turning it into charcoal with a reduction reaction, heating it in the absence of oxygen. It's been conducted for thousands of years in the Amazon basin. And then you take that charcoal and you mix it in with the soil, and it accelerates microbial activity, and those microbes break down the nitrogen into a form available for plants. So this whole process is all about improving nitrogen availability. Mm. And all it requires is mixing in up to 8 or 10% by volume of charcoal, biochar, into the soil. I used it at the homestead I called the Mud Hut. We're using it at the in New Mexico. At home, yeah, in New Mexico. We're using it at the homestead in Belize as well. And I know that it won't matter. I know that it's too late. But I continue to take that right action. Had we done that as a society post-World War II, mm. instead of soaking every field with ammonium fertilizer once or twice a year, you, by the way, you ha you're required to use biochar once. Not once or twice a year, once ever to improve the soil health. Once ever. You might have to do it again in 50 years. It requires basically the same infrastructure as the Haber-Bosch process to create ammonium fertilizer. And we've known about it for a very long time. So we could have been using that, but there's not any money in it. If if we just use a one treatment option to improve soil health all through the United States, and we don't have to revisit that for 50 years, there's no big money in that. 
There's big money in burning fossil fuels. There's big money in ammonium fertilizer. There's big money in human population growth. There's big money in consume, 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 the primary tenets of capitalism. So, of course, we're encouraged to do all those things by this system that's planetary omnicide run amok. Omnicide. Mm. We're killing everything. You don't yeah. have to look far to, to no. acknowledge no, that we're, we're not just driving other species to extinction. We're, we're, ki- we're killing all life on Earth. That's absolutely insane. You know, we're, we're the most dangerous species, I think, the planet has ever seen or ever will. And uh, we kill each other for fun and amusement, yeah. unfortunately. Yes. To bring and, freedom uh, and doc- democracy around the world. <laughs> right, that's another The goal, level. apparently, is to kill everybody. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Reminds me of a cartoon, The Wizard of Id. Uh-huh. And the the fortune teller is sitting there looking at her crystal ball, and she sees, uh, she says to the person across the table, she says, I see a time of great peace in the world. She's looking to her future ball. And the person across the table says, I bet the people are happy. And she says, I don't see any people. Yes, we are a rapacious species, but John Gray, the British politician and writer, calls homo rapians. Not homo sapiens, homo rapians. Yes, we've destroyed the planet. I I came up with my own, which is called homo ridiculous. (laughs) That's nice, too. I've heard homo colossus, and and what do I I use? Homo calidus. Calidus. Yes, we're not the wise ape, as suggested by Homo sapiens, yes. the wise ape. Right. We're the clever ape, oh, as clever. suggested by Homo calidus. Oh, I see. So Crafty. we are clever. Yeah, a lot of Too good clever by half, do. you might even say. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so tell me then, if, first of all, let's let everyone know that you are listening to A Better World Radio. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. as well as on other times. And uh, we're also on television, as you know, and you're watching now. We're doing the radio show on television every Monday evening at 7 p.m. If you do not yet receive our newsletter, please go to abetterworld.tv, www. of course, abetterworld.tv, and sign up for a free newsletter. We'd love to have you as part of our A Better World community. And we are speaking with Guy McPherson, environmental scientist, about the truth of the situation. You know, one of my spiritual teachers, Guy, is named George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. Not that well known these days, but uh, very popular back in uh, the uh, turn of the 20th century and on in France, Russia, all of Europe. And uh, he had a chapter in his book called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson called The Terror of the Situation. And it was really largely about what we humans are doing to the planet and what we do to each other. And what he called the cosmic sacred individuals from above, from the inner uh, galactic circle, decided that we were so dangerous and we were also, because we were so unwilling to see the troubles that we have caused, that they put in a, uh, an organ near our sacrum called the organ kundabuffer. And it was actually the thing, I'm so sorry, that was the thing that buffered us from the reality that we were creating. Because if we didn't have that buffer, 
we would all, like lemons, just walk into the sea and just die because we'd be so horrified by what it is we have done. Right. You know, so at a certain point, they decided they better take that buffer out because we need to see. And uh, hopefully then we would uh, wisen up right. and uh, not just be wise acres. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. Anyway, if you're saying that the mitigating, reversing potentials that we have with, I was telling you earlier about a certain kind of combination of seeds for growing grass that sequesters carbon six to eight times faster that we had a better world work with. There are the, the work of Dr. Licht. There's a wind technology I'm working on. There's a waste-to-energy technology that has zero carbon footprint um, that produces biochar, by the way. That's one of the reasons I was asking you. Um, there are, there's a tremendous global movement toward doing things right, right action. And is it too little too late? Of course, that's what you're saying. But I'm wondering, from a scientific point of view, as best as you can assess, knowing the changes that are taking place relative, of course, to the continuing damage being generated, what is the net benefit? Is there one? What do you think? As nearly as I can tell, all of the solutions or benefits or things that might make the situation better are rooted in civilization. They require this set of living arrangements to be maintained. And as pointed out by Tim Garrett's work, relying upon the laws of thermodynamics, civilization is a heat engine. So that tells me that if we have to rely upon this set of living arrangements to fix this set of living arrangements, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? Uh, uh, Again, another paradox. Right. Ralph Waldo Emerson said so many years ago, Something like that. I'm not going to be able to quote it directly. The end of the human race will be that it dies from civilization. Something very close to that. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be we're well, we're right on the verge. Out. Yeah. It yeah. seems like that yeah. we're there. That the heat engine known as civilization, which drives to extinction 150 to 200 species every day, according to United Nations report from August 2010. The the fouling of the air and the dirtying of the water and the washing of the soils into the oceans and and the nuclear power and and all, all of it all of it is rooted in civilization and and the very word sounds too nice to be God, used the way we use it. <laughs> I say I'm still waiting for civilization. I'm yeah. still waiting for some civil activity. Like, like Gandhi's, like Gandhi's response when he was asked about Western civilization, he says, "I think it would be a good idea." <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just doesn't seem very civilized what we're doing. No, it does not. <laughs> I went into the field of psychology guy many years ago because I was raised during the Vietnam era, and I was a young lad. And I thought, wait a minute, these are adults. Adults are supposed to act adult. They're supposed to be responsible. They're supposed to be smarter than we are right? And yet they're brain, uh, blowing each other's brains out as a means of solving conflict? Right. Well, I the, didn't understand the economic underpinnings at the time. But, you know, now I, that we are the adults, do you feel a lot different about that? 
I'm sorry? Now that we are the adults, do you feel a lot different about that? That the adults are, you know, responsible? I see that basically all we are is grown-up bodies in same emotional, infantile conditions. It's emotional arrest. And I would argue that in the United States, and by extension, the Western world, we have been infantilized. We have come to depend upon these things over which we, has, as, no, as individuals, we have no control. The water coming through the taps, most people don't know anything about that entire process. Where does that even, water even come from? The food in the grocery stores, the electricity when we flip the switch, we have become so infantilized that we don't know where all that comes from. So we can't even really take responsibility for our own actions for all of those things we depend upon for our very lives. You're completely right. We are so removed from reality, we don't know. I mean, there are kids and millennials even, teenagers, that go and they may see a, a piece of chicken in, uh, you know, plastic in the uh, supermarket and not actually connect that to an animal that runs around in the farmyard. Right. I mean, and it's, it's really that extreme. And then I was interviewed by by a, a millennial, a kid, a 17-year-old, just an hour and a half ago, who who knows, who knows, who knows everything, and he knows that that chicken was an animal, and he knows where it was grown, and he knows all of these things, and so it really, yeah, it's the Again, irony and the, the the twisting that goes on my with my, in my mind. Yeah. To think that there are lots and lots of people out there in this country and in the world who are so willfully ignorant about everything that's going on, and then there's 17-year-olds who know and can't do a thing about it. And get it. And get it. They get it, you know, and there's nothing to be done. What are they going to do? They can't fix the mess that, that our generation yes. created. I tell you, the baby boomers, I once had a lot of faith in us when we were hippies. <laughs> and, but Absolutely. Then, boy, has it gone downhill. Yeah. Every, I'm, I'm pretty sure that every generation has this sense of idealism, that we're going to make the planet a better place. Correct. And, and if you define making the planet a better place as smartphones, then we killed it. We're in trouble. So let's go back. I mean, basically you're saying that even with, changing things, if we were to, no pun intended, slam on the brakes right now with our um, CO2, massive CO2 production and methane production, et cetera, et cetera. Even then, from a scientific point of view, what would you say? Have you done any calculations that would show us what that effect would be? Yeah, you know, the calculations were done by Hansen and colleagues and by Levy and colleagues in those papers in late 2011 and then in May of 2013. That's global dimming. If we put on the brakes of civilization, if we even slow down by as little as 35%, we heat up the planet beyond the, so quickly, so quickly that it's difficult for me to imagine that we would survive. And And from the perspective of a conservation biologist, I, st I study speciation, how and with what predecessors, when and with what predecessors a species comes into being, extinction, when the last of, an, of a member of a species goes extinct, and habitat, what do we need to survive? And I don't see habitat persisting much longer, and especially if we turn off the switch of civilization, habitat for human beings goes away in six weeks. 
So I don't think there's anything to be done. And that said, I'm a huge fan of taking right action, of doing, even if it's at the level of the individual, of me and you, of acting with compassion and with decency and with respect and, and treating you with dignity like I prefer to be treated myself. Do I think that will extend my run as an individual, our run as a species? No, I don't. I still think it's the right thing to do, and I'm not attached to the outcome. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, no, I, so I talked for that. 21 years in every course I ever taught. I talked about having too many people on the planet. I don't think I had a student who chose to not have children, not one. Because when you're, when you're pushing against evolution by natural selection, that's a tough battle to fight. Sure is. Even Nietzsche gave up on that idea, gave up on the idea of the Ubermensch or the uh-huh. Superman or the Overman late in his life because mm-hmm. he realized that human nature born in evolution is just too tough. There's no stopping it. We, we well, cannot stop the maternal instinct through the education. The maternal instinct, the sexual instinct, and of course what's interesting is in the higher level teachings of the wisdom traditions, East and West, there is the entire idea of using sperm and eggs for higher inner transformation. So it's not, it's not powerful nuclear level material being released outwardly, which would lead to um, continuation of species, actually, but it would be for inner fertilization, if you will. Mm-hmm. A whole very interesting domain, which, from my and perspective, there has is to have a relationship between some external and some internal, and the I middle think, way, as it were. Hmm? Yeah, and that's the important part of growth. The important part of growth is not what we do as a society, not the external growth that we experience. The the way more people on the planet than we had yesterday, more than 200,000 more people today than we had yesterday. Mm. Rinse and repeat every day mm. for the last for my entire life. That's not the important part of growth. The important part of growth is what happens within. And you know that, and lots of people who have taken the time for introspection know that. But it's too few of us. It's too few. It might be millions of people inspired by Buddhist or Hindu tradition or who are just thoughtful and who took the time to contemplate their own place in the universe. And I would argue that's the important part of growth. That's where personal growth comes from and that's what changes your own actions and leads to maybe a change in human behavior writ large. And... That's that's the important part of growth, the most important part of growth. I think there's nothing more important than that. And I also don't think that at this stage it's going to improve the prospects for our human future. And I still think it's hugely important to do. Because if you don't even know who you are, if you don't even know why you're here on this planet, if you haven't come up with some purpose for your life, then what what are you doing breathing my air, man? Exactly. <laughs> What's it about anyway? Healthy, as I said before. Absolutely. No, no, I I appreciate that. So let's go back, and we just have a few minutes left, uh, to look at what you're doing yourself. It's clear what you're teaching and informing and educating people about. I think it's of utterly profound value, and I totally thank you for being... uh, 
the Ubermensch, if you will, to uh, to do that because you are swimming upstream, no pun intended here, um, among the scientific community, and we're dealing ultimately with a psychological and emotional issue of denial and of armoring against the truth, which is an age-old problem, uh, just revisited, and the consequences now are more dire than ever, I would definitely say. Uh, and by the way, I want to also uh, put in uh, a good word for the word hope. Hope is truly valuable from every single point of view, psychological, emotional, and physiological. And so to have hope that we can make a difference, that we can contribute and improve the lives of others is a generator of life. Just it. So even in the face of the fire, and we have a squirt gun instead of a hose, it's still of great value. So I'm not one who's going to be giving that up no matter what to my last breath. At the same time, I want to deal with reality, and I feel that you are really a harbinger of that, and I I deeply appreciate it. What are you doing and what are you teaching people to help them uh, address this because, of course, I mentioned I've interviewed Carolyn Baker, who is a co-author of yours through our other mutual friend, uh, um, Andrew Harvey, um, which is helping people, and I do this in my own classes and in my uh, work with, with clients, help them acclimate to the real situation. There are degrees of that. Could you speak about that and how the transition you see people going through and what they need to do in order to still lead a happy and engaged, right action-based life and at the same time deal with reality and improve what they can. Right. So I'm trying to lead by example. I reached the conclusion that adding people, adding more people to the human population on Earth would not improve anything of significance. And I reached that conclusion when I was 19 years old. And so I decided I wouldn't have children. And I pointed out the disasters associated with too many people on this planet every course I ever taught for you solve 21 years in the classroom. You, you don't. I don't. And so this is a classic example of yes. pursuing and teaching right action and not being attached to the outcome. Had I been to attached to the outcome when I saw essentially every single one of my students go out and have children. I'd have been crazy. I'd have been crazier than I am right now. How about the replacement theory of two? Two generate, two come forward. Because each generation for the last many generations has lived longer than the previous generation, two is more than replacement. 1.8 is replacement, and I don't see anybody having 1.8 children. I think I know a few people who are around point eight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they're not looking so good. <laughs> and and so I've been a big fan and I've promoted the reading and done the reading of books like Odom and Odom's A Prosperous Way Down. Which points out how we can contract the economy and we can have fewer people on the planet and we can maintain prosperity along the way. And that book came out some 20 years ago. And, you know, everybody who needs to know knows about it. And we didn't do any of those things. And so what am I doing? 
I decided in 2007, actually three years before that, I began the search for an off-grid location, an off-grid homestead, because I wanted to lead the way in light of the sixth mass extinction, in light of abrupt climate change, in light of all of the consequences, all of the adverse consequences of civilization, I wanted to show the way out of civilization. So that started in 2004. I found the place after a three-year search in August of 2007. I moved full-time to that property in May of 2009, and I've been living that's off New Mexico. That's in New Mexico. And I subsequently moved a little more than two years ago to Belize, and where I live off-grid and grow an enormous amount of the food I eat. And so I'm trying to take these actions that I've been calling right action for years in the classroom, dating back more than 30 years now, and I remain adamant adamantly unattached to the outcome because nobody is following. Nobody followed my lead when I left active service at the university voluntarily. Nobody jumped off the treadmill. Nobody thought forsaking the monetary system was a good idea, even though it was greasing the skids for all the adverse outcomes associated with civilization. And it's a good thing, you know, a bunch of people didn't follow because we didn't know about global dimming at that time. And now we do. And we know that that alone is enough to drive us to extinction. So who came up with that understanding, that observation of that mechanism? Was that, was that Hanson? It, from a scientific perspective, as nearly as I can tell, it was Hanson and colleagues who published the first paper on it in December 2011. That said, there's a BBC episode from 2005 on global dimming that you can still find online. And they didn't have the numbers. They had the process. They knew approximately how this worked. Yes. They had the concept. They had the idea down. They didn't have any quantification to go with it. That waited six more years until Hansen and colleagues came up with the 1.2 plus or minus 0.2 degrees C as a result of global dimming nationwide. And then the Levy paper points out that the Hansen paper was conservative. It was commonplace in the scientific literature. Later papers show that earlier papers were conservative. So, you know, now... As you were doing. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And so, scientifically, the idea was developed, expanded on by Hansen et al. and then by Levy et al. in 2011 and 2013, respectively. But the idea has been out there for a while, since at least 2005, when BBC ran this episode about it. So, how much before then? I don't know. I haven't looked any deeper than that. It could be long, but it's been. A, the point is, it's been a long time. You yes, know, this indeed. is 13 years after 2005. It's been 13 years since the BBC In other words, warned and us. What has happened? And we haven't done diddly squat in terms of action at the societal level. And I didn't know about that episode from 2005 when I moved off-grid, or I might not have moved off-grid. Because because, because if you move off-grid and nobody's burning coal anymore, then we're dead even faster. I mean, Had I known about the full impacts of very impactful statements today. And for me, that is the one that is just resounding 
because it is so contrary to where I've been coming from and uh, my the wind technology with which I'm dealing and it's such a profound technology it has the ability of cutting the world's cost of electricity in at least half and it's you know bird friendly and it's quiet and it's brilliant at the same time one of its possible applications is to go into coal smokestacks and I describe it as going from swords to plowshares we could take a smokestack and turn it into a wind tunnel for for wind you know technology but now I'm beginning to say wait a minute maybe that wouldn't be such a great idea right but that's an alarming place to come to of course I, it's the it's the whole Alarming. story of civiliz of civilized life, unintended consequences. Yes. So of course it's bad to continue burning fossil fuels. Of course it is. Of course that produces greenhouse gases that warm the planet, and it has all kinds of untoward other side effects. So of course it's horrible. And as it turns out, turning off that switch of burning fossil fuels is probably even worse than keeping it going, because you know, of the rapidity of temperature rise in the wake. It reminds me of cases, and I believe that these have really existed, uh, because I think I know of one, where people have been smoking all their lives, and their body has acclimated to the smoke inhalation so much that it would be more disruptive and less healthy for them to stop smoking because of the habit than it would be to just continue to smoke, crazy as it sounds. Now, here there's another biochemical feature, perhaps, in what you're describing with global dimming, but it's an interesting phenomenon that might be parallel. Right, right, absolutely. That might be the perfect metaphor. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're 95 years old and you've been smoking since you were 15, who am I to tell you to stop smoking? For one thing, <laughs> and and for another thing, maybe it would be the worst thing for you. What the body would have to do to adapt to a cleaner yeah. condition yeah. may be enough to actually, you know, keel the person over. So, well, guy, this has been of extraordinary depth and magnitude and I want to just thank you so much for the good work you're doing and you're willing to be courageous in a world of uh, you know they can call you the doomsday scientists but they're the naysayers of doomsday <laughs> and well, it's not doomsday it's reality right that's a very important point to make right and and my message all along has been to remain calm nothing is under control pursue excellence pursue love <laughs> live with urgency, and I don't think that doing any of those things is a bad idea, even if you're not going to die until you're 120 years old. Even if our species persists forever, I don't think those are bad ideas. So thank you for the opportunity to share a little time together. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Guy McPherson, environmental scientist, who has been just a uh, shaking the trees, if you will, and teaching us things and bringing things to our attention that just other scientists have not been willing to do. And it has nothing to do at all with giving up. He made it utterly resounding and clear. Live a good life. All we're doing is looking at the acceleration, if you will, of uh, the truth of life and death, and we need to deal with it 
Anyway, so let's make the most of our lives and do the right thing as we are called to do anyway. So I want to just thank you all for listening today. Please visit us at www.abetterworld.tv and uh, sign up for the newsletter if you're not on it already. And I love hearing from you. So if you want to write to me at mjr at abetterworld.net, always appreciated. Love hearing from you, mjr at abetterworld.net. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.